Hey everyone, I'm happy to be here. I've gotten the privilege of being here a few times and every time I've come with my wife Danielle and daughter Flora, we just have the best time. Also, I just wanna be clear, I, I am proudly from Hutto. <laughs> I don't say Austin area, I say I'm from Hutto. Um, thank you Jonathan for that prayer and I just ask that y'all would continue to pray for me as I speak namely that I would speak in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Out of the depths, I cry out to you. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is the first two verses of our psalm today, Psalm 130. And it's the voice of a collectively exiled Israel. An Israel that is desperate, mourning, <laughs> confused and fearful, and probably a bit disappointed. These are all feelings that we all know deep in our bones. In a way, this could even be our voice. God help us and listen to us because things have gotten really bad. Surprisingly, this Psalm ends on a hopeful note. Just a few verses later, starting at verse seven, the Psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For the Lord exhibits loyal love and is more than willing to deliver. He will deliver Israel from all of their sins. This is the voice of a people who have felt the pain <clears throat> of living in a violent world. And yet that, this final sentiment feels like it's written by a different party of people. You might be asking after me reading these two little verse sections just a few inches away from each other in your Bible, how can God take something so desolate of hope and make it into anything worth rejoicing in? Today is the third Sunday of Epiphany. This is a season marked by divine showing, revelation, a, seeing, a season of things being made known. It's like light being turned on in a dark room. It's like glasses being put on blurry eyes. And it's like being told or offered a word that perfectly explains how you feel or that perfectly names what you've been longing for all this time. This is the kind of showing that this season is all about. Epiphany, in short, is a season of surprise. And so that's my prayer for us this evening. That as we look at some of these texts, that the Lord might surprise us. Psalm 130, the psalm that I've read parts of already, is actually a part of a broader collection of psalms. So Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are normally referred to as the Psalms of Ascent and have a strong relation to the exile and are probably 
most likely written during this period itself. And oftentimes we're like, yeah, the exile, I know what that is. But just for the people like me who has to regularly be like, what was that again? Explain that to me. The exile is a time in Israel's history when the wheels have fallen off the bus. The people of Israel have already divided themselves into two kingdoms. And yet, that did not solve any of the problems that led to that division. Ultimately, both have exhibited um, idolatry, sins that have hurt themselves as well as their, their brothers and sisters. And the result is that God has given them over to their enemies that neighbor them, the northern kingdom to the Assyrians and the southern kingdom called Judah to the Babylonians, the king Nebuchadnezzar, as many of us know. But what's helpful to understand is that the exile is a time of deep, deep loss. It's a time where there's a loss of land, family, cultural identity, and even freedom. We might hear that and think, I haven't experienced anything like that in my life. I mean, I'm from Hutto, Texas. I definitely have not experienced anything like that. But I want to push us to be a little bit more imaginative and to see that we actually have, in a way, experienced an exile of our own. You see, the reason that Israel's exile happened is because there was another exile that preceded them. In Genesis 3, we see our first parents sin. And as a result, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're exiled from the life of God and exiled out of his very presence. And in a way, we follow after them. The good news is this. God really, really loves his people. He really, actually loves his creation, and not just the idea of his people and his creation. He actually loves us. And so even as humanity was full of sin and brokenness, God made efforts all throughout the Old Testament story to partially dwell with them to even, in a mediated way, commune with them. That is, in fact, what the temple system is an attempt to be. God said, sure, I'll be in this temporary tabernacle while you dwell in the wilderness. I'll guide you through pillars of fire and clouds. I'll stand next to you and watch over you and even give you wisdom as you worship golden calves. You see, God has made it very clear that he wants to dwell with his people. This is actually what we see in our other Old Testament text today in Jeremiah. If Psalm 130 is the morning of Israel, Jeremiah 3 through 4 is the morning of God. It takes place at this same time. Jeremiah is in fact known as the weeping prophet, the one who is announcing the very things that the psalmist of Psalm 130 is mourning about. And this is what we hear from the mouth of Jeremiah, from the heart of God. How I would set you among my sons. 
and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all the nations. Oh, how I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. But surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. In the words of Walter Brueggemann, the father wants to give his children their inheritance more than the children want to receive it. And speaking more broadly, God wants to live with his people more than his people want to live with him. We can't save ourselves because we don't really want to. That's a lot of the story of Scripture. In the following verse, there is a hint of surprise, though. Just like there was a surprise with Psalm 130, there's a surprise in Jeremiah 3 through 4. The following little pericope, just an inch down in your Bible, starting in verse 21. God says, A voice on the bare heights is heard. The weeping and the pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their ways. They have forgotten the Lord, their God. And then he says this. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. A faithless son returning to a faithful father. Does that sound familiar to you guys? St. Jerome actually draws a direct connection between the prodigal son story told in the New Testament by our Savior and this small verse that you could miss if you're reading too fast. What it reveals is the same thing that that prodigal son story reveals to us. It is that Israel though unfaithful, is not too far for God. They have not exiled themselves into a place that is too far to where his grace cannot reach, and that's true for us. This also tells us that, yes, Israel's situation is dire. It's not making light of it. It is a dire situation. And yet, it is not outside of the territory of God's redemptive power. And neither are you. The state of being for Israel is categorized perfectly in Psalm 130 as being in the depths. This is what it means to be as low as you can go. It's in the depths that Israel, during this exile period, is crying out to God for help, for, for a listening ear. But this is not unique to Psalm 130. This word picture of being in the depths is riddled throughout the Old Testament. It's woven in just about any nook and cranny the writers could put it in. We see it in King David when he's running from Saul. And in Psalm 18, when he's praising the Lord for delivering him from his hand, knowing that if God didn't act, he would be dead. He says, Lord, you reached down and you pulled me out from the deep water. In the story of Jonah, the very reason that Jonah, his family, and the animals 
found themselves alive after this flood is because God gave them a vehicle that saved them from the chaotic and troublesome waters. Jonah, he is cast into the bottom of the sea, and when he is taken into the big fish, he has this long prayer that lasts an entire chapter. And when he talks about being cast into the depths of the sea, he refers to it as death. God, you saved me from death. This is the same language, actually, used in the Exodus account when the Egyptian soldiers follow the Israelites into the parted Red Sea. And then the Red Sea collapses upon them. It says that Pharaoh's soldiers were crashed into the depths. To be in the depths is to be about as low as you can go. Water is representative chaos throughout all the scripture and to be down deep in it is to be as good as dead but it is in this state that jesus enters into the chat via our gospel reading he says or we hear from uh the gospel of mark now after john was arrested jesus came into galilee proclaiming the gospel of God in saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That last line. I will make you fishers of men. It's important that we understand that Jesus' fishing analogy, analogy is not just a pithy turn of phrase that's completely disconnected from the rest of Scripture. Where do fish live? Fish live in the depths of the sea. Fish live in the chaotic waters. Fish live in the depths that are so strongly correlated with death itself. Therefore, the call, of Je- the call of Peter and Andrew by Jesus is not the same call that um, a prize-winning fisherman might have to his sons by buying them a fishing rod for their birthday. Go get them, champ. Get the biggest fish you can and take a picture and put it on your Instagram and show the world how awesome you are. Jesus' call to Peter and Andrew is not uh, for, the, for the need of, of nourishment. Here, sons, we really need dinner tonight. Here's a fishing rod. Go catch us something so that we can kill it, fry it up, and eat it together as a family. No. Jesus' call of Peter and Andrew and his job description for them actually makes clear what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to plunge his arm deep into the depths of our sin and our death, and to lift us out and offer us his own body as a holy haven. And here's the craziest part. He invites us to participate in this very action for other people. The redemption of God's people is not simply providing a really beautiful plot of land for them to now occupy 
or a really immaculate temple for them to worship in, or even a really impressive political ruler for them to follow and feel the comfort that comes from that? No. The redemption of God's people comes from Jesus pulling humanity out of the depths of sin and death by his bare hands and then giving an occupation or a vocation to those who have experienced this new life so that they might offer the same to others. This past Thursday, we celebrated the feast day of the Confession of St. Peter. Actually, one of my best friends' name is Elijah, and him and his wife, Jesse, uh, brought their baby boy into the world on that day, and they did not know that, but they rightly named him Peter. It was meant to be. This is a feast day where we celebrate that great scene where Jesus declares that Jesus is Lord and is the first disciple to do so and then is given this title, is given this vocation that it's actually on him the church will be built. And if we know Peter's story, that's amazing within itself. Jesus, um, Jesus in, this, in, in this story, though, has this line that he asks his disciples. It's really easy to miss if you're just reading it really fast. He says, hey, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they reply, some say John the Baptist. Others say Isaiah. Got to put Isaiah in there. And others say Jeremiah. Why is it that there are people who are looking at Jesus and identifying his person and work with the prophet Jeremiah? Jesus' summation of message in Mark is this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you know about the prophet Jeremiah, as I noted earlier, he's the weeping prophet. He offers us, I mean, it's a really long book of the Old Testament, and there's some really sad stuff in there, and then there's some really joyous stuff in there. Lots of hopeful texts in Jeremiah, and yet he's still named the weeping prophet. And the reason for that is because part of his prophetic announcement is to say, repent, God is going to do something good and redemptive, but not right now. And it's about to be really bad. Worst message ever. It's going to get better, but not for you. Some people are probably hearing Jesus say, repent and believe the gospel. We're probably hearing about Jesus, that he's being baptized outside of Jerusalem by a non-temple priest that he's not engaging with the religion of the day in the same way that might be expected. And they might think, dang it, it's happening again. A prophetic announcement of repentance for us now, of good news that's coming one day, but if you're alive now, I'm sorry, there's nothing for you. But that's not it. Because Jesus is not saying, repent well enough, and I might just pull you out of the waters of sin and death. 
That's like my brother when I was growing up putting his knees on my arms and hovering a loogie over my face and saying, hey, I won't drop it on you if you say you're stupid three times. <laughs> That's a real story. No, Jesus has pulled you out of the waters of sin and death. And then he says, repent and believe the gospel. So what does that mean? It means don't jump back in the water. Don't jump back into the place that God in Jesus Christ has just pulled you out of. Enjoy the life in which he's given your, you for free. But live your life out in light of the great gift that has just been placed on you. Share it with other people so that they might feel the freedom that has been bought for us by Jesus Christ. This is the surprise of Epiphany. The surprise is that Jesus is with us in the depths, but he doesn't just pat our backs and say, this is really hard. He actually provides an objective forever way where we get to experience that resurrection life that is only his. This is the surprise of Epiphany, that the Father has jumped off of his porch and in a reckless way met us in the middle of a field to say, I've been waiting for this. You belong to me. Now let's throw a party. This is the surprise of Epiphany, that it's not just uh, the president, the CEOs, the powerful, and the cool that get to be at the front lines of this good, good vocation that God has won for us in Jesus. But it's smelly fishermen. It's, it's normies. Christianity is for normies. And that is a huge gift because there's a lot more normal people out there than there are CEOs. I've done the math. I've crunched the numbers. And so, friends, what a gift it has been to open God's word. I've been surprised. And in light of that, I just pray that as we leave this room, as we leave this building, that we might live into this holy vocation that we've been given in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.